Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another edition of Bagoon's Barrage, the State of New England podcast with me, your host as always, Jake Donnelly, a.k.a. Bagoon. Well, yes, it says it in the title, this is the State of New England podcast, but here's the thing. Right now, there's only one New England team going. It's the Boston Red Sox, and while, yes, they are only a couple of games behind Aaron Judge and the New York Yankees for first place in the AL East. We could spend this half-hour-plus show talking about the Red Sox, but we're actually going to forego that discussion because we've got a lot to talk about. Going to take a little bit of a bite into the Stanley Cup Finals. Also, the NBA Finals are starting tonight between the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers, but... Before we get to either one of those two things, first we have to go with our topic of the day. And normally, our topic of the day is something that is happening in sports. We have done one when it comes to Sam or Califf over at Deadspin and just people coming up with these dumb, dumb, dumb articles and what are essentially hot takes, probably to get a rise out of people like me. And guess what? We've done one, now we're going to do two, and the man of the hour for our topic of the day is none other than ESPN's Buster Only. So here's the thing. When I went off on Sam Caliph over at Deadspin for insinuating that New England, Boston is racist, that's a guy that I do not like. I do not enjoy his writing whatsoever. Pretty much every single time that he comes up with an article, I vehemently disagree with said article. Now, Buster Olney is an entirely different story because Olney is a well-respected baseball writer Every time, at least until recently, that he has put finger to keyboard, used to be pen to paper, but I don't think anybody's writing long hand and long form articles any longer with a pen and piece of paper. But lately, when he has put his fingers to the keyboard, stuff's been coming out that's just, it doesn't make sense. They're not good articles. They're either articles in which it shows the game is passing him by or he doesn't have an appreciation for the history of baseball or he is completely just trolling. It's only one of two things with only lately. And this is a guy who, as I mentioned, I thoroughly enjoy His writing, his book, The Last Days of the Yankees Dynasty, where he goes in depth about Roger Clemens and the black box, which now everybody can look back upon and go, oh, yeah, steroids. Um, But he talks about Mariano Rivera deadening this really awesome speech that was going through the clubhouse right before Game 7 against the Arizona Diamondbacks and how it kind of just threw everybody through a loop. But here's the thing. Only about a week and a half ago, came out with an article about, it was entitled, Baseball Must Must End Its Beanball Legacy. His point was essentially, baseball has to start punishing pitchers for throwing at batters purposely. Now, I'm a fan of the beanball because I have watched baseball my entire life, and I am well aware that the average pitcher, if he wants to get the inside corner, has to 
be able to throw at batters and push them off of that inside corner. But for Buster only, he takes in this article the culture of the Baltimore Orioles and Jim Palmer, who almost never threw at opposing batters. And then he goes and he brings up Cal Ripken Jr. and how Ripken Jr., when he first came to the major leagues, was uh, very confused about the lack of protection that he was getting from his pitchers on the Orioles staff. And then he realized as he became the go-to star on the Orioles that, hey, maybe we shouldn't throw at guys because I'm the one that's going to get hit. Now, it's a little bit selfish and only goes into this discussion about how Mike Mussina, who almost never hit players, threw at Bill Hasselman when he was on the Seattle Manors, and they got into a fight. Hasselman goes after Mussina on the mound. Mussina sprains his shoulder, and Mussina ends up having just an awful string of games out there on the mound to end his season. An ERA that was uh, north of five, if I remember correctly, it was like 5.38 or 5.88. But anyways, he uses this one little anecdote and then brings in Cal Ripken Jr. and how Ripken Jr. actually strained his knee in the fracas, right? In the big old Donnybrook, Cal Ripken Jr. Ooh, too bad he strained his knee. Now, the reason it brings that up, obviously, is because of the Ironman streak, uh, streak for Cal Ripken Jr. If Ripken Jr. gets hurt in the baseball between, uh, between the Orioles and the Mariners, then you don't have the Ironman streak. So he's trying to just pluck ding, 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 at the heartstrings of baseball fans saying, look, bean balls are bad. We would have lost out on the Iron Man streak. Okay, that is taking one little story and bringing it to about as far gone as in way out in left field conclusion as you could possibly take that story. So it's a little bit of intellectual dishonesty there from Buster only, but if you thought his intellectual dishonesty was going to end right there, you are sorely mistaken. And now, Olney is a guy that knows so much baseball history, and this is why I love him. You can hear him talk and wax poetically about decades upon decades of baseball information, but it's a good and a bad thing because I believe Buster Olney knows that his audience isn't aware of the same things that he is. And obviously, uh, that's why he is on ESPN as a baseball writer. It's because he has all of these things at the forefront of his brain. So he could bring them up. He has that recall. And he uses that ability in this article, right? So what ends up happening is he talks about the Mucina and Hasselman um, Bean Brawl and everything that came between the two of them. And then he mentions this little story about how Palmer broadcast games for the Orioles. And Palmer had mentioned, as kind of an aside, you know, Matt Barnes, when he threw at Manny Machado, it went up high and it almost came right into the dome piece of Machado. Now, anybody that was watching that game knew that Barnes was missing high all day. So when Barnes came in, 
and purposely threw at Machado, that ball was going to go by his head. I completely, completely understand if somebody says, hey, if you want to throw a beanball and you throw it towards somebody's head, you should be suspended for, especially a reliever, Probably anywhere between five to ten games. A guy like Matt Barnes, he's going to get in 60% of the time uh, out of the bullpen in Red Sox games. 80% of the time if they're playing close games. So a reliever, uh, five to ten games. If it's a starter, make him miss two games, right? Give him an 11-game suspension. Don't let him um, appeal it and drop it down to like an eight or nine because obviously with five guys in the rotation, an eight or nine game suspension actually just means one game for the pitcher. But here's the thing. He talks about and relays the message from Palmer. What if or he says you don't want to be remembered for the guy that hits somebody? And he immediately, that is only, immediately goes and mentions Jack Hamilton. Jack Hamilton is a guy who pitched in the majors for eight years, um, 218 games. But what everybody remembers Hamilton for is not for those 218 games, but for one out of those 218 games, the one where he hit Tony Canigliero in the eye in 1967. And Canigliero was never the same. Tony C. was an awesome, awesome ball player. For the Red Sox, gets hit by Jack Hamilton. And then Canigliero never got back to that 1967 form. He then lists more instances of when guys got hit and the pitchers that hit said batters. But here's the thing. Jack Hamilton did not mean to hit Tony Canigliero. You go to the next one in the article, Carl Mays. Carl Mays pitched for more than 15 years, won 209 games, had an ERA sub-3, 2.92, and pitched in the World Series in four different years. I'm reading this straight off of the Buster Only article. He even got some Hall of Fame votes in 1958, but what everybody remembers him for is that he threw the pitch that killed Ray Chapman in August 1920. Now, again, Buster Olney is arguing about beanballs in baseball, purposeful pitches that hit batters, not the accidental balls. His argument is that the legacy of beanballs needs to be stricken from baseball. And yet, to prove his point, he is using instances where these were not beanballs. Ray Chapman did not get killed by a pitch thrown by Carl Mays that Carl Mays wanted to hit Chapman with. Going back to that game, and I just read um, this great book on Ty uh, Ty Cobb, they mentioned that game in the book and sources from the day say that people, batters, were complaining about the ball and how it was too dark to see at that time and that it was dangerous. The danger was not because of a pitcher purposely throwing a ball at a batter's head, but because of the ball itself. There is not a single place in Major League Baseball now where you will not be able to see the baseball. Right? They are all pearls, shiny white 
spheres with the stitches all about him. You can see the baseball. Carl Mays, when he threw the ball and it hit Ray Chapman and it killed Ray Chapman, Ray Chapman never saw that pitch, okay? Never saw it. You give him a white baseball, entirely different story. So now he uses to back up his claim of taking the beanball out of baseball, he's now used two instances that were not beanballs. They weren't even purpose pitches. Do you think he'll finally go to an instance? Nope. Dickie Thon gets hit by a pitch in the face um, when he was 25 years old in 1984. Never close to being the same caliber player after returning. Mickey Cochran, a Hall of Fame catcher whose career ended when he was hit by a pitch in 1937. Kirby Puckett, who of course was hit by El Presidente, Dennis Martinez in 1995. Puckett never made it back. It was the last pitch of Puckett's career. Um, and Puckett never even got the vision back in his eye the same. David Wright hit in the head by McCain in 2009, and Wright would twitch and flinch at curveballs that were spin into the strike zone. None of those instances, not a single one, was that pitcher trying to hit that batter. So you have statement A from Buster Olney. Baseball must end its beanball legacy. And to prove it, he brings in a bunch of examples that have nothing to do with statement A. That's like saying that guy is a great fastball pitcher and somebody going, yeah, well, his curveball sucks. Exactly. But that is not what you said. What you said was he is a great fastball pitcher. You're pretty much implying curveballs suck. Buster only is saying, hey, Beanball should be taken out of the way, but let's talk about something entirely different that has nothing to do with the point I am making. He then goes on uh, to mention Andy Pettit and how Pettit almost never threw, uh, guys, almost never threw at opposing batters. And yet, in the same game, in the exact, exact example that he gives in this article, only disproves his claim. I'm going to read it verbatim. In the first series the Yankees played after 9-11, back in 2001, the Yankees faced the White Sox in Chicago. Kip Wells, a hard-throwing right-hander with erratic command, drilled Bernie Williams in the side of the head in the top of the first inning. Williams lay on the ground in pain, his feet kicking. Full stop, no longer quoting the article, okay? So Kip Wells, a hard-throwing righty with erratic command. We got that. Hits Bernie Williams, center fielder for the Yankees. He doesn't mean to do it. Doesn't mean to hit Williams. Hits Williams in the head. Williams is then on the ground, his feet kicking in obvious pain. Again, that's not a beanball. That's a pitch that got away from Kip Wells, and he inadvertently hit Bernie Williams in the head. Okay? We have yet to discuss the beanball in this scenario. Now back to the article. In the bottom of the first, Pettit took the mound for the Yankees, and with one out and a runner at first, Pettit smoked Maglio Ordonez with a fastball. What happened seemed apparent. In this emotional time, Pettit had hit Ordonez on purpose because he, like Williams, was the number three hitter in the lineup for his team. Pettit was quiet when asked after the game what, uh, 
Pettit was quiet when asked after the game, when asked if he had targeted Ordonez and turned in his locker, I don't want to talk about it, he said quietly. Now here's the thing. Kip Wells, erratic, no control out there on the mound. Hits an opposing batter inadvertently. Awful. Happens in baseball. We can't take that out of baseball at all. That's not something you can control except for the one pitcher, but it always tends to happen. The other guy, Pettit, right? Pettit is now the one who throws the beanball. He is the one that is purposefully throwing the baseball at another batter. He hits Maglio or Donius. Nothing happens. You want to know why? Because Pettit purposely was throwing it at Maglio or Donez, and he didn't hit him in the head. This is the point. A beanball, if executed properly in baseball, unlike Matt Barnes against Manny Machado, a beanball, if executed properly in baseball, will hit the opposing batter below the shoulders and above the knees. There's about a three-and-a-half, four-foot sweet spot where to drill your target 90% of Major League Baseball pitchers can hit opposing batters. And this is the thing. With the way that Olney brought this argument and then how he tried to substantiate it by using examples that have nothing to do with what he's talking about, he was being absolutely intellectually honest. He talks about Jim Palmer, Hall of Famer. Okay, you want Jim Palmer? How about I give you Roger Clemens, Bob Gibson, and... Mm, Pedro Martinez, okay? You take Pedro Martinez, who in my opinion is the best pitcher of all time. You take Roger Clemens, who threw in the same era, and you take Gibson. All three of those guys, sure fire Hall of Famers, and Gibson was kind of a contemporary of Palmer, sure fire Hall of Famers, every single one of those guys were headhunters. They would purposely Brush back batters from off of the plate. If you got too comfortable on that inside corner, a pitch was coming at your shoulder, right? Brawls everywhere. But you want to know what brawls are? Brawls are exciting, especially in baseball. When the Red Sox are playing three and a half, four-hour games against the Chicago White Sox of all teams. Brawls are awesome. April game, you're going to tune in. If there's a brawl or you think there's going to be some words exchanged between batters and pitchers, maybe the bullpen comes running in. That's one of my favorite things to hear. Here comes the bullpen. Yes, thank you. I will absolutely turn into a random Diamondbacks versus Cardinals game in the middle of May if I think those two teams are going to start jawing and throwing at one another. So you want to talk about Jim Palmer? who never threw at anybody, Buster only. He didn't have to. Well, that's good. You want to know what, though? I'll take a Gibson. I'll take a Roger Clemens. I will absolutely take a Pedro Martinez. Guys that would throw at other batters and make them uncomfortable in the plate because then the second that that batter starts thinking about maybe this pitch that's coming inside is actually going for me, it is not the breaking ball that's going to swoop back in over the plate. When they start thinking that, all of a sudden, the pitcher has won that battle. When they're thinking about anything else besides trying to hit that ball, if they think maybe something is coming towards their shoulder, towards their body, yeah, 
the pitcher has won that battle. And to me, it is no coincidence that guys like Gibson, Clemens, Martinez were some of the best pitchers of their time, maybe even, in Martinez's case, the best pitcher of all time, specifically because they knew how to throw inside, because they did the beanball, because they knew how to execute properly a purpose pitch. So Olney, who I did not agree with at all in that article, he's not done. No, 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 no. And by the way, just to stop that little segue, which it was too good, so of course I have to mess it up, but Hunter Strickland, the Bryce Harper, <laughs> back and forth as Strickland pegged Harper, and it was definitely on purpose, that brawl between the um, Giants and the Nationals. Yeah, who thought that they were going to be locked in on what was happening between San Francisco and Washington? Yeah, ratings <laughs> through the roof, right? Awesome. And it was from something like three years ago. That was just stupid from Hunter Strickland. But Olney comes in and says the, the, the San Francisco Giants need to preemptively suspend Hunter Strickland for his selfish actions. Oh, shut up, dude. Lighten up, Francis. All right? It's baseball. Just because you apparently don't like how baseball used to be played and how effective somebody hitting another batter can be from time to time, just because you don't like that doesn't mean, doesn't necessitate that it's a bad thing. All right, so only goes in on that. And Harper's comments after he got hit by Strickland, and I'm paraphrasing here, but what he said, it was great. I loved it. Uh, he goes, yeah, clearly he meant to hit me, hit me in a good spot, hit me right on the thigh, couldn't get away with it, but that's the sweet spot, that's exactly where you're supposed to hit a guy if you want to. Uh, Harper also laid into him for going, like, dude, was that three years ago? Yeah, it was three years ago. Um, but it was great, right? That's exactly where you're supposed to hit a guy, and most pitchers, not Matt Barnes apparently, but most pitchers in Major League Baseball, when they want to bean an opposing batter, they can do so, and they can do so effectively and in a way that is not dangerous. Okay? So we get that. Now, only is not done. So week and a half ago is when he writes the Beanball article. He, over Memorial Day weekend, comes out with this article that says Clayton Kershaw it's called Making the Case for Clayton Kershaw as not just a Hall of Fame pitcher right now, 10 years into his career. He's in his 10th year, which makes him eligible for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And yet, he brings up great points. And Clayton Kershaw is a fantastic pitcher. And we'll get to some of his numbers. But here is the line that made me go crazy. At the end of the first paragraph in Olney's article, he writes, you can make a strong case that Kershaw is the best pitcher ever, period. What the hell are you talking about? A, ten, a guy that's in his 10th year, not even 10 full years, in his 10th year as a pitcher, you are saying you can make a strong case that Kershaw is the best pitcher ever. Okay, two things against this stupidity. One, 10 years can never, in any sport, be an all-time career. So while Kershaw 
has great numbers. You cannot say in his 10th year, even come close to saying something like you can make a strong case that Kershaw is the best pitcher ever. Holy drunken Batman bender, is that a magma level hot take? Kershaw's an absolute stud of epic proportions, but to claim he is the best of all time when he does not even hold that title within the Dodgers organization is baffling and patently absurd. Kershaw's career has two major failings, one that is out of his control and one that is almost entirely his fault. We'll get to the one that is out of his control first. First one up, his career, as I mentioned a moment ago, is all of 10 seasons long. That's not out of his control. Or, sorry, that is currently out of his control. He's nice. He, he, you can't just all, all of a sudden be in your 20th year, right? You need a full, full career, eight, 15, 18, 20, Greg Maddox, 23 years to be even near that discussion, right? So it's not his fault that he's only pitched 10 years. The guy wasn't born in 1970, right? He's not 47 years old. We don't know what his career is going to entail. But that's the problem. It's the fact that right now, Kershaw is in his prime and only is projecting that his numbers in 10 years or however long he has, and again, we don't know. He could have a catastrophic, what was that word? Catastrophic injury. This year in his career could be... 10 years, which would be shorter than Sandy Koufax's 12. And yes, this is not the last time we will bring up Sandy Koufax's name in this discussion. But here's the thing. 10 years in, Kershaw is at his apex. His numbers might be static for mm, the next two, three years. But after that, you are going to see a decline, right? In year number eight for Kershaw, he struck out. 301 batters, walked 42. In Pedro's eighth year, he posted a similarly insane 313 to 37 strikeout to walk ratio. Those numbers are nuts. And this is what only talks about. He talks about just how crazy and how good Kershaw's numbers are right now at this moment. And that is the crux of his argument, that Right now, Kershaw's numbers are otherworldly uh, other and might be some of the best numbers ever, but again, against other guys that have pitched 15, 18, 20, 23 years. So only uses ERA+, plus, which uh, takes um, an equation and compares it to how you pitch against other pitchers of your era and takes into account the ballparks in which you pitch. So he takes ERA plus and he takes whip. Career-wise, uh, career Kershaw's ERA plus is second all-time right now at 159. At the time of his publishing, it was 160, so it came down a bit. Pedro Martinez is third all-time with a career mark of 154 for his ERA plus. Kershaw is only in his 10th year. Pedro managed 18 seasons during the most hitter-friendly era in baseball history. And only is trying to say with eight years less, fewer, eight years fewer, 
of action for Kershaw, you can make a strong case that he is the best pitcher ever. Kershaw has appeared in a little more than half the games Pedro did, but he still wants to just run full stop and say Kershaw is the best pitcher of all time. Sample sizes matter, and Pedro's is longer and much more dominant, and that is exactly the crux of the issue. Only's argument is predicated on a small sample size. When Only published the article, Kershaw was 27th all-time in fielding independent pitching, FIP, FIP, uh, and second all-time in whip walks hit per innings pitched. Just one start after Only wrote the article, Kershaw is now 31st in FIP and 4th in whip. When it comes to the discussions about the best all-time, you have to take the entire career under examination. It's why nobody says that Roberto Clemente was the best outfielder of all time because, unfortunately, he died immediately after his 3,000th hit. Sure, you can project it, but the same way you could project a Bob Gibson, right? Like, ugh. Or Josh Gibson, I should say. Um, Yeah, so just it, it pains me so much that a guy like Olney will make that claim and then... The worst part of his article is the intellectual dishonesty which comes up yet again. The knock on Kershaw is his complete inability to show up in the postseason. This is like the argument, if you want to say why Kershaw isn't nearly as good as everybody says he is, it is because Clayton Kershaw has a pretty decent portfolio of what he does in the playoffs. But the problem is that portfolio is nowhere near Decent, okay? Kershaw has strikingly bad postseason numbers. In my opinion, that is why Kershaw not only loses his best pitcher of all time title, but also the title of best pitcher in Dodgers history. And to me, that belongs to Sandy Koufax, right? Every baseball fan knows Koufax's dominance. He had a short career, just 12 seasons long, uh, due to arm issues and overworking. It took six and a half years for Koufax to hit his absolute secretariat-like stride. But when he did, he put together some of the best seasons of all time. Now, Kershaw's run that he's currently on, which is just as long as Koufax's five-year run, is just as impressive. You can look up the ERAs and you can flip them, and you couldn't tell which guy is which, Kershaw and Koufax. Except for when you look at the postseason, Kershaw... In 89 postseason innings, has a 4.55 ERA. His career regular season home runs per nine innings is 0.6, but that number almost doubles to an even one. He's given up 10 home runs total in 89 innings. And the worst stat beyond Kershaw's ERA is the fact his teams are 3-6 and six in postseason series. Now, let's look at Sandy Koufax. And yes, we do have to take an aside to say when you won the pennant, you only had to win one postseason series, the World Series. But that's why the regular season was extremely important. Somebody can say that it's even worse for Kershaw because uh, regular season numbers aren't nearly as important now. And regular season numbers were even more important because it was, were you the best in the uh, National League? Yes, then you get to the World Series. No, you don't get to the World Series. Okay. So Koufax 
in the postseason, 57 innings pitched for Koufax, three World Series titles. I do not count his first one um, when he didn't provide anything. But uh, 57 innings pitched was part of the rotation for three World Series titles, a 0.95 ERA in 57 innings. You heard that right. A 0.95 ERA, four complete games, two shutouts, and seven starts and eight appearances. He even started three of the seven games in the 1965 World Series, which the Dodgers won four to three. It was probably actually that exact World Series which shortened Sandy Koufax's career. In total, Koufax, two World Series MVPs, struck out 61 batters, walked just 11, and his whip, 0.825. And most importantly, Koufax's teams in postseason series, 3-1. and one. So you have Koufax, who was by far the best player out of anybody. In the series, when he pitched, Koufax 3-1, two World Series MVPs, three World Series titles, an ERA of 0.95, Kershaw, 89 innings, a 4.55 ERA, and his teams are 3-6 and six in the postseason. Only uses arguments um, like to use the postseason as a litmus test would be to rank Mickey Lolich as an all-time great or to dismiss Greg Maddox because he lost more than he won in the postseason. No. One. Yes, the postseason matters, you idiot. That is why no one in the NHL cares about the President's Cup. All they care about is the Stanley Cup. You don't talk to people north of the border and hear all the stories about the kids growing up and dreaming about holding the President's Trophy over their head. No, everybody wants the Stanley Cup. You think the Washington Capitals are happy with the last decade? Do you want to be the Capitals or do you want to be the Pittsburgh Penguins? You want to be the Penguins. And this is the other thing. Bringing up Greg Maddox's postseason numbers, massively disingenuous. Maddox won a World Series first off in 1995 and had a career 3.27 ERA in 198 postseason innings. Okay? That is stupid to bring up Maddox, whose numbers much better, more than a run better. Then Kershaw, 4.55 ERA versus a 3.27 ERA. When I wrote the article about the Kershaw stance and the case against Kershaw, I brought up the old uh, Super Trooper scene where you've got, uh, I can't remember the names of the guys, but anyways, it's the fake bulletproof cup test and they show the shooting by one of the officers and he's got everything perfectly middle ringed and then there's one little guy off to the corner and the question is, what about that little guy? And he goes, that little guy? I wouldn't worry about that little guy. Here's the thing. The postseason is not that little guy, and you absolutely do have to pay attention to it. People make their careers on the postseason. Kurt Schilling is a fringe Hall of Fame caliber pitcher, but he is so, so deserving of the Hall of Fame, specifically because of what he did in the postseason. 19 starts, a 2.23 ERA, and 131 and one-thirds innings, pitched 120 strikeouts to just 25 walks, and oh yeah, he only allowed 12 home runs. In other words, 
Kershaw has to allow fewer than two home runs in his next 44 innings to do better home run-wise than Kurt Schilling, and he will never catch that 2.23 ERA in those next 40 innings. Not only did Schilling post those outrageous numbers, but he also won a World Series MVP, had a total of three titles, and oh yeah, will forever be remembered for the bloody sock game, and then also ending the 86-year drought for the Boston Red Sox. Kershaw, what's his postseason? A 4.55 ERA with 10 home runs allowed in 89 innings. Olney's argument is bolstered by two massively important issues. You first have to disregard Kershaw's obvious failings in the postseason, and then you have to wrongfully assume his projected numbers will stay static through the rest of his career. When you look at Kershaw's numbers, they absolutely stand out in the regular season, but only in the regular season. The postseason matters, folks, okay? Do you want to be the Washington Capitals or do you want to be the Pittsburgh Penguins? Let's go another sport, right? Dan Marino, by the time he retired, had, home, had almost every single significant quarterbacking record to his name. And yet, Dan Marino, is he anybody's idea of the best quarterback ever? No. When he retired, the best quarterback ever was Joe Montana because Joe Montana had five Super Bowls, and Marino went to one and lost that one. Kershaw hasn't even been to the World Series yet, okay? He hasn't won an NLCS, but who do you want to be? Do you want to be Dan Marino? Do you want to be Joe Montana? Or do you want to be Tom Brady? You want to be Tom Brady. It's that simple. You do not want to be the Washington Capitals. You do not want to be Dan Marino. All right, so that was, not surprisingly, long-winded. And I guess that means we're going to have to cut down our time here on the NBA Finals. Uh, my prediction before the start of the NHL playoffs was going to be Pittsburgh in five. I just thought that Pittsburgh's firepower offensively. Did I call it the NHL Finals? Ew, Stanley Cup Finals. Um, my prediction there was going to be Pittsburgh in five. I tweeted it out. Um, right now, that's looking pretty good. They're up to nothing. I think that uh, Pittsburgh and Nashville will split a game in Nashville, and then when they come back to Pittsburgh, that's going to be over. Kind of looks like that's exactly how it's going there. And then in the NBA Finals, I'm saying it's a sweep. Uh, the BPI, which says the likelihood of uh, a team winning the series between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors, the BPI says that it is 93% likely that the Golden State Warriors are going to win that championship. And I think people don't realize just how good the Warriors are. They've been sleepwalking through the entire season. They missed uh, Kevin Durant for uh, the final third, maybe, uh, maybe less, maybe a quarter. But for a significant um, portion of time towards the end of the regular season, Kevin Durant maybe the fifth best player in the NBA, maybe even better than that. He's the third option for the Warriors. Durant's going to average 30. The Warriors are going to run roughshod over the Cleveland Cavaliers. So Penguins in five. Cavaliers 
are going to get swept. We're going to see LeBron cry, although he doesn't really care all that much about losing. And that's one of the reasons why I think if you bring up Jordan versus LeBron, you're an idiot. And hey, maybe that's the topic for our next Bagoons Barrage. But for now, that will do it here from the state of New England. I thank you for tuning in once again. This is Jake Donnelly, a.k.a. Bagoon, with the State of New England podcast. And as always, go New England. I love to hate it